Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It's three minutes past nine. You are tuned to 102.7 RRR. Time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. Um, my name's Dr Beach. How are you, Dr Beach? I'm very well. I'm fresh Excellent. back from the Flinders Ranges on yes. holiday. How was it? Awesome. Great. Saw my first stromatolite, fossil stromatolite. Cool. Very ancient alga. Can we talk about them in a second? Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> I'm just excited. I know. That's great. Good on you. Good on me. So it's all about me. <laughs> Thank you, Tim Thorpe, very much for Vital Bits. And uh, I didn't actually catch Soulful Bits. Thank you, Andrew, for Soulful Bits, if you had Soulful Bits this morning. I just love the way Tim confessed to confusing um, what actually happened with what he might have seen on the screen. <laughs> I'm not the only one. He does it as well. I confuse dreams with reality sometimes. Do you? Yeah. Are you actually here? I think so. Maybe you're I dreaming. I think I'm here this Maybe morning. we all are. Um, and uh, thank you very much, Edith, for things to do today. On today's program, shortly, Fum uh, Sharko is coming in, bringing us her next instalment of Plastic Literacy. So literacy is as in L-I-T-T-E-R, assy. Yes. This month, Plastic Roads. Cool. Yeah. Plastic roads. Things to do with plastic. Things yeah. to do with nasty plastics. Uh, so that'll be really interesting. Then um, we are going to have in studio two very special guests, Kerry Goodall from Ship for Good and Priya Cooper, who is Engagement Coordinator for Sea Shepherd Australia. And they're going to be talking to us about the uh, MV Steve Irwin. So that amazing ship. It's one of their, their big flagship defenders of marine life in the Southern Ocean, uh, our Southern Oceans. And uh, now with a new purpose in this program called Ship for Good. So it's now permanently moored at Seaworks in Williamstown and we're going to be speaking with Kerry and Priya about the history of the MV Steve Irwin to start with. Live in the studio. Yeah. And uh, and some of these great activities coming up which you can take part in. And then very excited to close the show with um, a satellite phone connection to the RV investigator. Three weeks ago we spoke to Dr Damien Callahan, who was somewhere off Darwin and they have been off Western Australia now in the what the so called Indonesian flow through Three weeks of wonderful observations have been happening by a team of people on that that flagship research vessel, the Investigator. And yes, they're going to be calling in. They're on their way back, just about finished the trip. We're going to talk to Damien, and we're also I'm very excited to be talking to Dr. Susan Weifeltz, um, who has headed up the the Argo float program, which we've spoken a bit about on this pro, on this um, on this show. And Susan's going to talk to us about the the trip, the whole point of the trip. All the work that's been happening and Damien will be telling us about the bits that they've been doing. Awesome. Discovering lots of new phytoplankton and all sorts of things. Fantastic. Yeah, that'll be fun. So that's going to close out the show for about the last 10 minutes. Brilliant. Shall we have a look at what the weather might be doing for us today, Dr Beach? <clears throat> yeah, just after I have a little bit of a cough. It's going to be 19 degrees, um, just under one millimetre of rain. A couple of sprinkles as I was heading up here this morning. Uh, tomorrow's going to be 28, so warming back up to 28 a little bit. Slight chance of rain, but not much, just a couple of millimetres. Um, and then on Tuesday, it's going to be 17 degrees. Wednesday, 18. Thursday, 21. And then, yes, yeah, so still cool. I mean, a maximum of 28 tomorrow for the week. So, um, yeah, summer hasn't hit yet. 
Not here anyway. No, not here. And if you're heading out on the water, you'll be wanting to know what's happening with the tides at Point Lonsdale, which of course is our heads. Uh, it's going to be high tide at a little bit before 11am this morning, and that's a high tide of 1.25 metres. Thank you, Dr Beach. That's a complete pleasure. Mine, <laughs> as it always is. A uh, couple of quick news items, and then I reckon we might launch straight into a track because we have got such a big show today. Um, want to pop into your diaries. The uh, Great Victorian Fish Count, which comes around every single year, is kicking off next Saturday. The Great Victorian Fish Count. Um, dive to you are taking part in that as well. So if you want to get down to Blairgowrie Pier, uh, Saturday 23rd of November... I've got that date right, I hope. Um, divers and snorkelers required. Don't do either. It doesn't matter. You can still come down and volunteer your time um, to uh, help sign people in and out. Hand out T-shirts. You get a T-shirt. It's actually really super cute. It looks like a cowfish I'm looking at. What do you reckon, Dr Beach? Yeah, it is. Yeah, um, which is the logo this year for the Fish Count. Uh, they always have such awesome awesome artwork and awesome T-shirts. Um, so you can go down there. I'm um, just reading from what um, AJ sent to me. Heading out to our our usual location of the magnificent Blairgowry Pier. Expect to see some amazing marine life and give a little wave to the operations, Operation Sponge, Sponges. Do you remember Operation Sponge? I sure do. Yeah. Blairgowry Pier. So fantastic. Uh, this year um, they're not doing a night dive. They've done night dive in the past. They will be conducting a thorough afternoon dive of the whole sea and sponge wall perimeter um, and based out on the pier where you will receive your dive snorkel briefing and your free T-shirt. So what a great way to spend next Saturday. There you go. Great Victorian fish count. Um, another one Do I wanted to mention super quickly um, this one is for November 28 uh, the VNPA Victorian National Parks Association are having a Nature for Life rally it's going to be at Parliament House in Spring Street and uh, it's a it's to get together, get everyone to come together and um, I guess show your support for the importance of biodiversity and priority for, um, for the uh, Victorian State Government to be considering. Very important thing to do. Yeah. So we'll put links to both of those events on our Facebook page. Estamos escuchando Radio Marinada en tres triple R. Indeed you are. And uh, it is now 14 minutes past nine. Welcome, Thumb Shaku. Good morning. Great to have you here again. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Let's launch straight in. Plastic roads this month. Yeah. So this this came up a few weeks ago when um, uh, in the city of Port Phillip there was a, a plastic road that was I don't know launched poured um, <laughs> in Mozart Street <laughs> behind the eco center, uh, and it was in the news um, with you know the mayor festively opening it and things like that, and um, it actually got it raised a lot of questions. Um, because, uh, you know, part of that road, it's not a plastic, plastic road. It means a plastic road means basically that there there is waste plastic that is involved in the aggregate that is then um, mixed up with the bitumen and port. So it's not a road made out of plastic, but mm. there's a percentage, like sort of like two to six percent uh, of it is, is plastic particles. And um, from our waste streams and in the light of the recent uh, and still current recycling crisis here in Australia, obviously people are paying really good attention to those kinds of things now and then looking for solutions um, to get rid of their plastic waste. And this is one of those examples. Um, but of course, we have, I had a million questions immediately when I read that article, uh, because we don't, you know, what's going to happen? How does it work? How does a plastic road get made? And what are the catches, right? Because when something is 
a little bit too good to be true, it usually is. <laughs> yeah. And I like to just kind of work out what the what the benefits are and what the repercussions might be. Yeah. So um, I did a bit of research and um, actually I didn't need to do a lot of research because Ozd Rhodes um, did the research for me. They've just re- launched a technical report. Um, and they've done a bit of desktop research um, around plastic roads and how they could be used in Australia. And AustRoads is the peak organisation of Australasian Road Transport and Traffic Agency. So they, um, um, they made a report about that. And it's really, really interesting to see what is happening um, and how plastic roads are made. And what I didn't know was that we are already using plastic uh, in roads at the moment, and we have been for a while, uh, in the form of waste toner, you know, printer oh, okay. printer cartridges. Yeah, so it's it's very interesting. Um, when you so when you bring your printer cartridges from your office or from your home to you know like Office Works or Bunnings or wherever they uh, wherever they recycle it, um, they actually use it to um, mix in with the um, with the aggregate that that connects to the bitumen because it lowers the melting temperature. So it actually, they calculated that it saves 23% basically on emissions. And waste toner is mostly plastic, which is something that I didn't know either. The the parts that are like silica and pigments is only a very small part. Most of it is a mix of different kinds of plastics. So is this the cartridge itself or is it the the toner? It's the waste toner, yeah. So you you know how you have like a waste toner cartridge in those big office printers where all the leftover toner powder just gets dumped into basically yeah. and that is then that is that can be recycled so they use that that powder um, and they've worked out that there's a 30% increase in the, the fatigue life of a road so apparently bitumen fatigues after a while and so there's a 30% less you know or like an increase in the life of its road and 30% uh, fatigue yeah so what this the, is like a, a, a general reduction impro- and a general improvement it's I mean, an improvement th- yes and there's a 50% cracking reduction so this is based on you know the tests that one company have done basically right. so so and that's been going on for a while but now uh, people are really looking to use household plastics in in roads as well and there's been a lot of research done all over the place but you know nothing in great quantities obviously because it's it's still quite a new a newish practice um I had a bit of a chuckle because apparently the guys in the UK that are working on this got the idea because somebody went to India and uh, they saw people of a village fixing potholes by dumping a whole bunch of plastic waste in it, then pouring diesel over it and setting it on fire. Oh, and <laughs> melting it. Yeah, and right. that's how they filled the potholes. Wow. Yeah, so that's how they kind of got the idea. Um, and then, yeah, ran with it in uh, in Europe. <laughs> and India is actually one of the countries that they're actually the first country that already have guidelines about plastic roads. So they've got 33,000 kilometers of plastic roads there already, already. mostly in the country. Um, and the first one they laid in 2002 actually doesn't have any potholes in it. <gasps> this was in 2017. Um, and yeah, about 3,000 people a year there die from road accidents caused by potholes. So for them, it's like a big step forward. Um, and in Australia, um, there's different types of mixes that are being experimented with at the moment because we have different types of plastic polymers, mm. right? So if you have your recycling and you look on the bottom, you see the little recycling triangle with a number in it. Um, and that means that there's all these different types of polymers. So we've got number one to seven. And not all of them are suitable for this kind of reuse or recycling. 
I think the ones that are best suitable are high-density polyethylene and low-density polyethylene. So that means your used um, plastic bags, uh, plastic squeeze bottles that you have your condiments in, uh, garbage bags. Uh, I think uh, the wheelie bins are made out of that as well. Uh, and milk, milk bottles, that kind of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, they... You know, different organi- or different businesses all make their own little formula and they do their tests and things like that. Um, so in Craigieburn, we've got a road already, and uh, it was reported that there's 200,000 plastic bags in that, 63,000 glass bottles because you can replace sand with with recycled glass bottles, which is very you know it's basically the same stuff, and uh, four and a half thousand uh, used printer cartridges and 50 tons of reclaimed asphalt pavement pavement as well. So that can be reused as well go craggy burn yeah go craggy burn i know right so um so it's quite it's quite exciting stuff uh in the netherlands they're doing a similar thing where they make a bike when they made a bike path out of plastic recycled plastic and they made it into these big lego blocks and they could make those in the factory already so it means that they could lay the road in one day because they literally just like like a Lego, they could just like stick that road together and the bottom of it underneath is hollow. Right. So you could run things like high-speed internet cables under there, traffic sensors. Um, in the case of the Netherlands where there's a lot of rain, it would be really good for, you know, getting the rain off the road, things like that. I'm thinking that you could have um, power cables yep. from solar panels Exactly. So, so they're looking at making solar roads so that, you know, you would have space underneath there for cables and things like that. Um, so there's some really exciting stuff going on. Um, but obviously, you know, as I said, if something sounds too good to be true, there is actually a chance that it might be. So, so you always have to be catch? critical. Yep. Well, one of the catches is that because it's such a new industry, we actually don't really know what's going to happen at the end of the life of a road like that. You know, I mean, the life, the lifetime might be extended. You might save a lot of carbon emissions and things like that. Um, but what happens when that road actually needs to be replaced, right? Because now you have a bitumen that is mixed up with chemicals of different kinds of plastics. Is it still going to be recyclable? Can you still break it and then use it again? Or does it then become a landfill, right? So you need to take into account the entire life cycle of a plastic road, not just the short-term benefits. So with the current road made of bitumen, mm-hmm. what happens at the end of that sli- the, the life of that road? To a that lot bitumen? of that is actually reused in roads like this. So you can break it up uh, and you can mix it into and make it into a new road because it's bitumen. It's not like, you know, a mix of other stuff. And they do the same thing. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that is mixed in with roads already, like masonry, uh, a lot of concrete from the construction industry is used for that as well because the more other stuff you put in you know the least uh, virgin materials you need basically mm. um, but we just don't know if that's going to be the case for plastics because you can't really recycle that forever right you mentioned um, that with the Mozart Street example that, that it was about two to six percent did you say plastic in that road um, I'm not sure about that particular one um, right. or but, but in general it's yeah that. yeah it's it, so so different organizations have trademarked their own mixes okay. if you know what I mean because it's not like there's a general thing like different uh, businesses are experimenting with different products um, but yeah, one of them is about two to six percent of plastics can be mixed in. I'm not sure which one exactly that is. 
Um, but because of the the um, consistency of plastics, you, you can't you know put in like fifty percent of it, for example, because your road would you know the, it would become too flexible or it would crack or it would melt or something like that, depending on the plastic you use. Using the Indian example, if you've got um, situations where um, and obviously not advocating for putting in just raw plastic and diesel and setting it on fire, <laughs> but. To, I mean, could could there be different sort of percentages of aggregates that can be created for different purposes? Yeah, exactly. So, so there's there's different types of plastic aggregates for different circumstances. So, for example, in Australia, it would probably be really good to look at what India is doing because we are dealing with high temperatures here in summer. So, you need mm. plastics that have a really high melting point, around like 110 degrees Celsius. You know, not like 75 percent, uh, 75 degrees Celsius, because the roads would literally melt in summer. That's not what we want. Um, but then in Canada or Russia, for example, they'll need roads that don't crack when mm. they freeze, or you know, roads that. Um, uh, stay really good when it's raining, for example. So those are different types of plastics. And another thing we need to look at at the end of life cycle is when these roads are starting to wear, and they will, are we going to see another batch of microplastics entering the waterways that we don't even know that it's happening or leach into the soil underneath? You know, because even though the life is extended of these roads, uh, if they're going to break down and it's going to end up in the waterways, then it might actually be better to keep that plastic in a contained landfill than out onto the road. So we don't know yet what's going so to happen there. So many questions. I know, right? So many questions. <laughs> it's so very exciting. <laughs> but it is exciting that this development's happening. Yeah. And yeah. it's like Nerida was saying, I can see you can see that straight away, the potential for this to really yeah. expand and develop. And The only thing we need to think about is that we make it a closed loop, yes. right? So it's, it shouldn't be an excuse to just get rid of our plastic recycling so we can produce more of it and think like, oh, it's fine. We're just going to make roads out of it later because that's not how it works, mm-hmm. right? We need to close that loop and look at the whole life cycle of a road like that but in principle for now it's it's quite exciting stuff thanks fam no worries fantastic next time you're (laughs) in we're going to be talking about the great ocean cleanup but other ocean cleanup um, innovations that are currently underway oh yes i have opinions yeah (laughs) and we're all looking forward to hearing them (laughs) see you next month everyone brilliant thanks fam ah 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 couple of quick bits of news, Dr. Beach. Uh, yeah, some, yeah, some quick news. Excellent. Um, uh, really more of a mention, uh, and uh, you'll be acutely aware of this, 11,000 scientists from around the world unite to declare global climate emergency. Uh, yes, Big indeed. deal. That's a lot of scientists. It is a lot of scientists, and indeed it's a very true thing, and one of the things that we might talk about later on. Um, when we're going live to the RV investigator is some of the data that's coming out of the trip that they've been doing there, indicating, number one, that the deep ocean is indeed heating up. Mm. Um, we can now demonstrate that. So, yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't want to talk about bad things. I, I talk about you know, the bad future so often and I really try to bring back. But, it's yeah, there is a climate emergency. Well, I'm following this one up with a good news story. Excellent. Yes. Um, Cheer me up. (laughs) So we've been talking a lot about the the work underway to re-establish shellfish reefs in Port Phillip Bay. And this is part of a a broader program that's going on in various different parts around Australia. So uh, some really interesting footage which has just come out. um, So just providing some evidence that it's actually working, the project's actually working. So these are mussel shells, oyster shells that have um, been accumulated 
yeah. washed a little bit, let out to dry, and then put back in the bay to act as um, places for spat. To That's right. Take hold. As a substrata. Substrata. So um, these are all seafood shells or um, bivalve shells collected from restaurants. So this is all coming. We're talking, Fum was talking about the closing of the loop. And here you have a perfect example with local, locally grown mussels and oysters and the shells being collected from the restaurants and then sort of um, brought together and then put down back into Port Phillip Bay to create a shellfish reef. And it's actually working. So there's been um, some video footage which has been taken, uh, an article, um, an item which appeared on ABC News. We'll put a link to that because uh, it actually shows, they're calling it, it is a secret location. I guess they don't want people to know where it is uh, specifically because they don't want people just going down there and starting to pick off the mussels just as they're getting established. But um, the mussels themselves form an ecosystem in their own right. They do. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So they're, they're starting. Oh, I guess the other thing is not just picking off the mussels, but they're getting juvenile snappers starting to come through and, and um, you know, it's, it's forming its own habitat. So it's fantastic. It's a great piece of news. So good on you. Nature Conservancy, who are the big, uh, big backers for this wonderful project. Last thing I'm just going to pop in the diaries, we'll talk about this more as we head towards the end of the year, uh, a seaside scavenge coming up. It's actually while we're off air over the holidays, uh, January the 12th. So pop that one in your diary that's taking place down on the Rye uh, for sure. So January 12th from 10 till 2, what a wonderful thing to do during the holidays. And we'll mention that one um, closer to the end of the year. And we had a call, Dr Beach. Uh, just briefly, yeah, Steve called in and asked us if we know anything about the oil spill down at Williamstown. Oh, I don't, do you? No, nothing. We'll um, see what we can find out. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. Hi, this is Tim Whitten. If you want to know what's going on in the ocean, tune in to Radio Marinara on 102.7 3RRR. You know where it is. Oh, we do know where it is. Thank you, Tim Winton. 9.35, you're listening to Radio Marinara. Indeed you are. Sea Shepherd's MV Steve Irwin, affectionately known as the Steve, was the flagship of Sea Shepherd's fleet. And after almost 10 years of defending, protecting and conserving our oceans and marine life, the MV Steve Irwin was retired from direct action almost exactly one year ago. And with the ship heading for the scrapyard, Kerry Goodall decided a better alternative arrangement might be explored. Ten months later, the MV Steve Irwin has metamorphosed into Ship for Good. It's a not-for-profit space of museum and mixed events and is now permanently and safely moored at Seaworks in Williamstown. So to tell us all about it, it's with great pleasure that we welcome from Ship for Good, Kerry Goodall and Sea Shepherd Engagement Coordinator, Priya Cooper. Good morning to you both. Good Good morning. morning. Thanks for coming in and getting up your Sunday morning. Thank you for having us. Let's start with, um, actually, I want to ask you about yourselves. What, What are your specific roles with Sea Shepherd? And can you tell us a little bit about Ship for Good, how it kind of sits within the broad overall framework of Sea Shepherd? Um, okay, Bron, sure. Uh, I'm not directly um, associated with Sea Shepherd. That's um, a Priya's job and they're amazing volunteer, money volunteer crew that have done nearly 10 years of campaigns on the Steve and other ships around the world. Uh, I heard about the fate of the ship um, not being uh, used by Sea Shepherd anymore and thought it was worth saving the ship to continue its legacy of uh, storytelling and, and a- not direct action anymore, but action nonetheless for uh, Sea Shepherd's benefit. So I put my hand up and uh, we came up with some options and it's it's where it is now as a mixed event space. Absolutely amazing. So we'll get onto that story in a minute. Priya, what do you do as the engagement coordinator for Sea Shepherd? So in my role as engagement coordinator, I liaise with the media and kind of I am involved in promoting our work in Australia and 
I was a crew member on the ship for five years previous to that. So, yeah, so I've got a kind of long-time experience with Sea Shepherd yeah. in, in different roles. So you've been on some of the campaigns. Did you go on the Steve Irwin? Yeah, I was um, uh, in my time on the ships. I did eight on ocean conservation campaigns, including two on the Steve Irwin. Wow. So this, this ship has got a bit of a special place in your heart. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, I'm, I mean, I think it has a special place in a lot of people's hearts because it is, it's such an iconic part of Sea Shepherd and ocean conservation kind of worldwide too. So yeah, yeah. it's an it's a amazing vessel. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the Steve Irwin? Yeah. How did it come to be one of these great sort of pre- – because the um, the image of it sort of crashing through the seas into the Southern Ocean and even the, the artwork, how it's all sort of um, painted on the outside, it's, it's, it's quite spectacular to see. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so Sea Shepherd purchased the vessel in 2007 and prior to that it was a Scottish fisheries patrol vessel. And in its time with Sea Shepherd it participated in 18 conservation campaigns, including almost a dozen – Um, Southern Ocean Whale Defence Campaigns, where it helped to save the lives of over 6,000 whales from the harpoons of the illegal whaling fleet. So, yeah, it's such an amazing part of Sea Shepherd's history and, yeah, something that we're really excited to have honoured in this way. Yeah, and and I mentioned sort of close to your heart, but I imagine that's the case for... It would have to be everyone involved in Sea Shepherd. Yeah, absolutely. Do you kind of want to just run up and give it a hug? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I think I reckon I would. They'd seen hundreds of volunteers crewing on it, and also, yeah, I think it just has, is, yeah, such a kind of special place for the Australian public as yeah. well. Why was there a need to retire it? What happened? So after, yeah, after eighteen ocean conservation campaigns, including sailing around the world twice, the ocean really kind of took its toll on it. And the ship was built in nineteen seventy five, making it you know, a very old vessel. And so just kind of the the ongoing costs associated with making it seaworthy were a little bit, you know, outside of, of a realistic, you know, thing to keep it operational. So, yeah, yeah. That, that's why the sad decision to retire it came to be. And it was on its way to a scrapyard in Hong Kong. And is that right, Kerry? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. yeah. And so, and then you found out about it and decided to put your hand up. What happened then? Because that's that's a big thing to try and take on. Yeah, it, it, can I, can it I only did. imagine the amount of red tape that you must have had in front of you for you know a whole bunch of different things in terms of looking to a potential solution. So, yeah, what happened? Um, oh, I, I knocked on the door of um, Sea Shepherd uh, in January this year. I was working at at SeaWorks. I do some event management down there, and um, Max uh, had informed me that that the Steve was was going to be retired and, and potentially scrapped. And I thought that doesn't sound right. A ship like that should be celebrated. As a hero, as uh, as the ship is and the crew, uh, so I made some inquiries and and uh, eventually spoke to Jeff, who's the Australian um, managing director, and I, I offered to lease it initially, just until they decided what they could do with it, uh, and that turned into look, we're not see Shepard aren't in the business of of leasing. Um, older assets they're in the business of direct action conservation so I said well maybe I could help manage the ship for Sea Shepherd and um, it turned into setting up a not-for-profit ship for good Uh, so we're managing the ship and the ship is owned now by that not-for-profit to be used by Sea Shepherd uh, and as a mixed event space and it's looking great so you come down and visit. And it's become a permanent fixture now it's permanently moored at SeaWorks in Williamstown, it is. Yeah. yeah, I was I was involved with the site um, some 16 years ago when we put some boat shows on actually to to highlight how fantastic the site that now is known as SeaWorks is. 
Um, and that site was motivated actually um, by a story of the Confederate raid of the CSS Shenandoah, which was um, obviously a part of the Confederate war, and it was an anti-whaling ship 150 years ago. Mm. And to think now that um, uh, probably the most famous anti-whaling ship in the world is retired at the same site yeah. uh, makes me pretty happy. But we need to keep on telling stories to engage the community in, in what Sea Shepherd do, and, and Steve tells a great story. So can you describe what it's like now if you went down there and, and, um, and you've got Gig for Good, so I want to talk a little bit about that as well. For people who are listening and want to go down and check it out, what, what are they going to find when they get down there? Okay, so we've tried to keep the ship as original as possible um, because it is a museum ship as well. So if you, if you go onto the ship, we've had a, a new gangplank built, which is more accessible for people with limited mobility. Um, and we've also, we have um, special facilities so everyone can enjoy the ship. But if you go to the aft or the back of the ship, there's a bar there now and um, some benches and bar stools and a beautiful view of Melbourne and the bay. Um, if you go upstairs by the internal stairs, you go to the helicopter hangar and the, the top deck, which is amazing, has a wood fire pizza oven in there. Um, <laughs> we're serving all plant-based uh, This is so awesome. Just, I, I, I want to go there this afternoon. Oh, definitely. <laughs> so, um, and then if you walk around to the midship, we've put a big main stage there, uh, which, which is underneath the iconic Sea Shepherd logo. And it looks brilliant um, with performers in front of that logo and, and um, then the backdrop of the city and the bay. It's a really fantastic space. It worked really well. We had our first gig a few weeks ago and um, with Cash Savage and, and um, some other bands and it was brilliant. So we hope to do more of that sort of um, entertaining and engagement so we can continue to tell the story and motivate people to make better choices for the environment and the ocean. Absolutely fantastic. Kerry, can I ask, has Williamstown, the dockyard, have they kind of come on board with this and they said this is a really a, a good attracting thing to yeah. Williamstown itself, so yeah. like I don't know, the lease might be cheap or...? No, <laughs> well, no I not at all, they're still milking no, that. I, you know, I, I, I think um, apart from keeping the ship and, and the story uh, alive, um, I wanted to make the, the, the site that's known as SeaWorks Viable as well and, and more community engagement and, and points of interest. Of course, they've got the Pirate Tavern down there and they've got a fantastic maritime museum. Um, it's a, a great site, but it needs to be viable as well with, with right. paying customers. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I pay mooring fees and Parks Victoria have been very supportive as well. And their head office, or one of their offices, is, is in Williamstown. Um, so we have their collaboration and I guess it's just working with the local council, SeaWorks and Parks Victoria, and also obviously um, Sea Shepherd's head office is on site as well. So mm. it's a great home for the ship. Now, there's a whole bunch of things coming up, which we'll go through. Um, there is a, an edible seaweed workshop taking place next Sunday. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So that's run by Ingrid, and she has uh, free food forage. And she's based out of Castle May, an absolutely incredible woman, and her knowledge of, of free edible food is incredible and and she also is a brilliant cook so we're going to do a walk along the foreshore in Williamstown and through a couple of the local reserves and parks and forage and then we're going to take it back to the ship and have a big cook up on the helicopter deck. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so that's next Sunday from 10.30 till 2.30. Mm -hmm. uh, you've also got a sustainable Santa market. Yes, that's right. Tell yeah. us about that. Um, well, I, I guess we, we just want to encourage people to, to make good choices this Christmas. Um, so less ends up in the bin. And so we'll be uh, inviting people to come and exhibit anything that, that fits into that sustainable model, whether it's homemade or repurposed. Um, you know, we'll have plants and 
all sorts of goodies. So you can see all those sort of things on our website and uh, Facebook as well. Uh, and finally, the opening of the helicopter hangar. You mentioned that, but there's actually a formal opening event um, with a, a rap artist, hip-hop artist. Hip-hop artist, yeah. Uh, he's, quite, he's an amazing talent and he, he's multi-instrumental uh, as well as vocalist. And um, Martian, he hasn't played a lot of shows recently, so we're pretty honoured to have him officially open the, the space. Um, and there's some tickets online and, and all the, the um, pro proceeds go towards running the vessel and towards Sea Shepherd. Fantastic. And I wanted to mention that too. So this is a, a not-for-profit space but with a direct partnership with Sea Shepherd. That's right. Yeah. Um, it's really awesome. And can listeners book out the venue for private functions? Yeah, absolutely. Great. I reckon a lot of people are getting excited about that already. <laughs> Including me. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Um, thanks so much, guys, for coming in. It's wonderful. We'll put some links to that on our Facebook page. Priya, I wanted to ask you anything that you want to talk about from Sea Shepherd just before we let you guys go. Yeah, sure. So um, we are very active in Australia. We have a marine debris campaign and beach cleanups all around the country. So if you are looking to kind of get involved and, and join the Sea Shepherd movement, then, yeah, you can check out our Facebook page, Sea Shepherd Australia, and, yeah, find out how to get involved. Brilliant. We'll um, put some links to everything that you guys are doing on our Facebook page as well. Wonderful. Thanks, Thanks so much Bob. for coming in. Thanks so been much for having us. It's been wonderful having you. So we've been speaking with uh, Kerry Goodall and Priya Cooper uh, about Sea Shepherd, uh, about the, the new lease of life for the MV Steve Irwin Ship for Good and, uh, and Gig for Good, some of those great gigs coming up over summer. Hi, this is Wayne Lynch and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Indeed you are, where it is 10 minutes to 10 and just played that track. That was Martian playing uh, Sun and Rain, um, that track of his from The Invasion. Martian is the artist that we mentioned when we were speaking with Kerry and Priya about Ship for Good. So that's what you can hear if you can get to that gig yourself. Um, we're in the process of trying to line up our next guest who is on board the investigator. Uh, over to you, Dr Beach. Uh, yeah, we're trying to get the... Whoa, so we're trying to get a satellite phone connection to the RV investigator, the CSIRO's research vessel, which is somewhere off Darwin. They're going to get into Darwin tonight. And I'm wondering if... Damien, can you hear me there? Excellent. I can. That's wonderful. So, yeah, Damien, how's it going? We've, you've been there for three weeks. Can you just for five minutes, and then I understand you're going to handball us to Dr. Susan Weifels, but for five minutes, just tell us what you've been doing for the last three weeks, and I understand you've been discovering all sorts of new phytoplankton there with David Hill, and it's just sounded wonderful. So I'm going to let you go for it so we, don't, so we have this delay, so I'm just going to let you talk for about four minutes. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Dr. Beach. Well, yeah, it's been three weeks. We're, we're steaming back to Darwin now. Um, it's been a really exciting time, and uh, we've been... I'll just give you a bit of a background of what we were doing again. So we were interested in measuring the gases produced by the phytoplankton uh, in the um, marine environment, and we've been um, steaming out for... Well, travelling around Scott Reef, which is about 300 kilometres offshore from the coast of Western Australia. And we're here on board with a whole range of scientists, oceanographers, uh, atmospheric chemists and meteorologists, and then us, which are the ocean biology team. And what we've been doing is, um, and is uh, pulling up samples from the ocean and, and looking at the phytoplankton in, in the ocean. And these are the, these are the bugs that are producing these gases that go up into the atmosphere and do all sorts of interesting things in the atmosphere. Um, 
So we use a device called um, a CTD, which is uh, how we kind of fish for the plankton. I guess fishing is not really the right word. But it has all these really cool instruments on it, and we lower it into the ocean, and we're able to monitor things like temperature, salinity, and what we're interested in biologists is the fluorescence, which indicates uh, the presence of phytoplankton. And so we monitor this uh, trace as it's lower down into the water, and we can actually figure out where the phytoplankton are, are actually sitting. Um, so it's been, it makes it a lot easier to actually figure out where we actually collect samples from. That sounds amazing. That's just, it's, it's so exciting, Damien. I can, I can imagine you there. I know it's been really hot. It's been like 35 degrees, 80, 90% humidity. I remember you saying to me it was like mill pond conditions for the first for the first week or so, at least, the last time I spoke to you. Has that, has that climate continued? Has it been really hot? Have there been, I don't know, it's all these questions I've got to wait to ask you, probably when you get back, but just go for it again. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, it's been super hot, but uh, the samples that we've been pulling up have been really exciting. Um, Dave, our phytoplankton expert, has been watching a, a bird watcher kicking off species that he's, never, he's always wanted to see. Like, it's, it's been exciting. Every time we pull up a sample, it's been really exciting. The diversity of samples and, and the actual amounts of phytoplankton that we're pulling up out of the depths have been really, really exciting. Um, and we've actually been able to isolate live cultures that we're bringing back to Melbourne to, to study these gases that they're producing. So they've been working ridiculously long hours through the night, isolating phytoplankton, and we've been um, describing the species there. And we'll be doing some genomics analysis as well as the, the species that are as well, there as well, but you can't see old types um, taxonomists looking down a microscope. That's fantastic, Damien. Thank you very much. And I understand that you have Dr. Susan Weifels there, who's the, who's the coordinator of the, of the trip. I was going to say cruise, but it's an expedition, a very important expedition. And Dr. Su- um, and Susan is head of the, um, the Global Ocean Observing System and was at CSIRO and I understand has now moved to Woods Hole Institute. They've grabbed her. It's our loss. Um, and she knows a lot about the so-called Indonesian through flow. So, Susan, if you are there, I'd love you just to talk about that and the reason for the trip and the coordination of it and the things that you have discovered. Okay, hello Dr. Beach. Um, so we're here uh, as part of a big international experiment that's been going on over the last uh, two to three years called the Years of the Maritime Continent uh, and it involves both oceanographers and climate scientists and meteorologists. Um, and so our trip is an Australian contribution to that. And we're interested in how the upper ocean and the atmosphere uh, work together to uh, bring us major uh, changes in our weather and climate. And so on this trip, we've had all kinds of really cool equipment deployed from the ship to capture the really fast exchange that happens through the day-night cycle. Uh, in the upper ocean between the atmosphere and the ocean. So the ship is loaded with sensors measuring what the atmosphere is doing and maybe putting lots of kit in the water to measure what the ocean is doing. And we've captured in these still hot, hot sunny days, we've captured these beautiful events where the upper ocean gets very, very warm and very, uh, very, uh, the, the temperature gradients get really strong. And that changes how the 
how the ocean and atmosphere talk to each other through these heat sources. So we've been capturing those things, which is super important to uh, the build-up of the monsoon and what happens to the monsoon, uh, which affects global climate. So that's one of the exciting things we've been doing. We've also been looking deeper in the ocean to see how the giant tides that exist in this part of the world influence the mixing deeper down in the ocean. And um, we can see those tides moving temperature surfaces up and down. And in fact, the, the strata at about 70 meters, where all of the phytoplankton uh, that these guys are super excited by, uh, has also been pushed around by those tides. So we can see an interaction of all the different aspects of the system. It's been really fun. Giant underwater tides. I've, 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 I've never been aware of those things. I can imagine them pushing up the phytoplankton and just awesome. But before we go, we've got a couple of minutes left. I'd just like you to also speak to the program, which you've been crucial in setting up I, 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 under, from my understanding, and that's the IMOS Argo float system, which we have globally now. And you have coordinated the Australian effort. And I think, and I, I understand that you've been really crucial in setting up this whole world program of these. These, um, these floats, these sensors that we have? Yeah, so that's the International Argo Project, and it's been going for about 20 years now. Um, and it's really a wonderful example of uh, inter- international scientific cooperation. So about 30 countries now are involved, and we operate a global fleet of about 3,800 very simple robotic profilers that are distributed right through the global ocean. And they have been returning uh, a map every month of where the ocean is warmer or colder or saltier or fresher. And we get that data in real time. And so it's uh, totally transformed our ability to track what the global oceans are doing, which is super important for our climate and uh, our understanding of what's happening uh, to ocean marine ecology, you know, the, the climate, the weather. And so Argo now is contemplating also trying to uh, include biogeochemical sensors so that we can get closer information that's closer to what's really happening to things like plankton that are right at the base of the marine food chain. So important. So uh, it's a very successful program, uh, and we're hoping to make it even better in the future. And if people are interested in Argo, they can go on the web and see the data, see the maps of the global ocean. Uh, it's truly an amazing thing that we can sit in our office and find out what's happening in the middle of the Southern Ocean in winter, for example. That's a, a wonderful thing to be able to, to do now. Indeed, it is a wonderful thing. And, and on behalf of the rest of the world, I thank you for being so instrumental in setting up this, this fantastic thing. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.